You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So before I bring my guest on today, I'm going to opine for a moment about the state of journalism. And the reason I'm doing this is because I think it sets the stage for our guest and the topic that we're covering and what he wrote about, which is the campaign to unionize Starbucks. Now, I am not a journalist, nor have I ever pretended to be. At best, I'm a blogger. However, for the last 15 or more years, in addition to my day job, I've written thousands of posts about unions, union politics, and labor relations in the United States, a lot of them on a couple of big-name websites as well as my own. And for example only, in 2011, I was at the first day of Occupy Wall Street at Zuccotti Park in Manhattan, and I was interviewing cops and protesters. And I wrote a ton of articles back then about unions and their involvement in Occupy Wall Street. Admittedly, a lot of my posts can be viewed as being biased depending on who the reader is. However, again, I have never pretended to be a journalist. Unlike today's quote journalists who pretend to be unbiased, I've always been upfront about where I stand. And unions and their acolytes may not like what I write or even what I say on these podcasts. But I have a tattoo on my arm, one of many, that's a quote from a person who I considered a hero of sorts, and the quote states, truth isn't mean, it's truth. So if you don't like it, I'm sorry. But if you do, okay, fine. I'm trying to point out certain things, whether it's viewed as being pro-union or not, that are important. Now, as you probably know, LaborUnionNews.com is an aggregator. It's a news aggregator. And what that means is that we find and hand curate stories or articles from all sources around the internet about labor unions, much of which, by the way, is what most would consider, quote, pro-union. And Monday through Friday, we, be, we average about 40 or, new, uh, 40 or more news articles that we send out per day to our subscribers on the News Digest. And again, those articles are from all over. It's things that are important that are going on with labor unions across the United States. And we have union subscribers, we have attorneys, and we have HR subscribers. Now, occasionally, and it may only be once or twice a week, if I see something in the news that deserves more attention, I'll write and post specifically on that topic because I think it deserves attention. For example, other than the multiple articles that came out when the PBGC, or Pension Benefit Benefit Guarantee Corp., bailed out the Teamster Central States Pension Fund to the tune of $36 billion of taxpayer dollars, very few journalists have written about the billions more of taxpayer dollars that PBGC has been handing out to unfunded pension funds. So I've taken it upon myself to at least write quick posts about it because other so-called journalists are not. Now, this brings us to the campaign to unionize Starbucks. As a news aggregator, in total, we have posted nearly 13,000 articles since we launched LaborUnionNews.com last year. And through the course of 2022, there were so many news articles being written about the campaign to unionize Starbucks that early on last year, we decided to start a separate category called Starbucks Union News. So if you're a subscriber, and you get the full digest, you will see that every morning when we post the news. Earlier today, I decided to see how many articles we've published about the campaign to unionize Starbucks on LaborUnionNews.com, and I was surprised because it's only been 670 articles as of today that we've posted about the Starbucks union campaign. And I can tell you, as we view and hand curate every article Most of the articles about the Starbucks union campaign are pro-union, whether it's about the NLRB prosecuting Starbucks or why why the baristas are unionizing, etc. 
What's interesting, although not surprising about the articles, is that there are some facts that are just not being talked about. So let me share some of those facts with you that are from unionelections.com, which we have a link to on the main page of laborunionnews.com. Overall, there have been 397 petitions filed with the National Labor Relations Board to unionize Starbucks cafes around the country. The national press, like the Associated Press, Bloomberg, and the Washington Post, and others, not to mention the websites like Vice and Vox, will tell you that 271 stores have been unionized. However, you'll rarely hear from the national press about the 85 petitions that were either withdrawn or where the union lost the election. Now, according to unionelections.com, there are still 37 petitions or elections that are open, which means we don't know if the elections have been held and are being litigated or whether they're at the NLRB awaiting for scheduling for an election, the regional director's uh, direction of election. And according to... According to unionelections.com, after more than a year of organizing, the union has won representational rights over 7,061 employees, but they've lost representation rights by either losing the election or withdrawing representational rights over 1,303. So you only hear about the 7,000 or so, but you don't really hear about the 1,300 that either voted against it or the union just didn't win. So, yes, the union has won 271 stores. However, those 271 stores are only represent about 3% of the approximately 9,000 company-owned stores across the United States. So, what's the point of this? Well, the other story that's not been covered much by today's, quote, journalists, is the amount of SEIU, Service Employees International Support, that they have given to the campaign to unionize Starbucks. And that brings us to today's guest, who is Maxford Nelson from the Freedom Foundation. Now, Max has been on Labor Relations Radio in the past, and a few weeks ago, he did some of the heavy lifting that most, if not all, journalists should have been doing for the last year. You see, to the extent possible, Max has investigated some of the monies and resources that the SEIU has given to the Starbucks Workers Union, or United, Starbucks Workers United, and published it in a recent National Review article, which I'll share with you in the links under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. You see, if people just rely on what the mainstream journalists, most wouldn't know or realize that the Starbucks Workers United is an affiliate of the SEIU, or Service Employees International Union. And I suppose I should be grateful Because if there are still real journalists out there, as opposed to biased opinion writers who like to call themselves reporters, Max wouldn't have had to do the research for his national review piece, and I wouldn't have had a guest on today. However, with that said, here's Maxford Nelson, Director of Labor Policy for the Freedom Foundation. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Max, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. How are you today? I'm doing great, Peter. Thanks for having me on. Well, you wrote an article in the National Review, uh, I want to say it was a couple of weeks ago now, that I found really intriguing about the um, Starbucks Workers United and its affiliation or ownership by the SEIU. And, Correct. and I figured That's, we could uh, talk about that a little bit, because I don't know that a lot of people are aware of how entrenched the SEIU is behind the scenes with Workers United or Starbucks Workers United. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's exactly right, Peter. And that's uh, you know I, I didn't start out to write this article necessarily, uh, but I, I wanted to find uh, examples of uh, documentation that had already been put into the public domain uh, linking the two, linking SEIU to the Starbucks campaign. I, I you know I follow labor issues reasonably closely. Uh, and so I, I kind of just knew in the back of my mind that there were connections here. But as I started looking into it, I realized that nobody re- really had documented uh, the connection between SEIU and the Starbucks Union campaign in any really comprehensive way. And uh, so that was that was kind of the whole reason that I ended up uh, writing writing this article in the first place. Well, and I think by the public domain, um, you're you're talking about the financial disclosures. Is did. Well, even even some that's certainly part of it. Yes, uh, 
Uh, but but even the mainstream reporting uh, that has uh, really this issue received quite a bit of attention last year uh, from significant press outlets, national outlets, Washington Post, and others talking about the Starbucks Union campaign generally. And but even looking through that, that very high profile coverage, almost to uh, to an article. The most that would be said about the SEIU's connection is that Workers United, Starbucks Workers United, the union leading the the, uh, the charge in this effort, was affiliated with the SEIU in some way. And, and if you got that one throwaway sentence somewhere in the article, that was more than most uh, reporting even acknowledged. So it was, uh, yeah, there really hadn't been any consolidated look at the connections between SCIU and, and this effort, the ways in which they were funding, uh, uh, providing some of the financial backing and the resources, but also the personnel uh, and the organizing muscle, uh, particularly in some of these early Starbucks locations uh, to, to unionize back in December uh, of 21 that really kicked off this effort in, into 22. So, uh, I, I think I was fascinated just based on the information that, that I was able to pull together just how involved SEIU has been uh, in, in the, the Starbucks campaign and how much we were able to prove if you went and looked for it. Uh, but uh, more information, I'm sure, is going to be coming out once unions start filing their annual financial disclosures for 2022, which for the most part we don't have access to just yet. Yeah, we, we might want to talk a little bit about um... – the financial disclosures, which are known as LMs, that unions are required to file. And what you're mentioning is that um, under the Landrum-Griffin Act, or the Labor Management Reporting and Disclosure Act, uh, unions are required to file pretty detailed financial information. And that's where a lot of the the tie-in that you're talking about will be seen. Correct. So unions' financial reports are due 90 days after the end of their internal accounting year, and most unions operate on the basis of the calendar year. Um, So the financial disclosures covering uh, the calendar year of 2022, when most of the SCIU Starbucks uh, organizing took place, should generally be available to us around the end of March, early April of this year, as, as those 2022 reports start getting filed. And you can start making more of the connections between the law firms that were being hired and representing the different Starbucks stores and payments from SEIU affiliates. Uh, or, as, as we discovered uh, as I was working on this National Review article, uh, payments perhaps to organizers or, or salts, you know, people on the inside uh, of these stores as employees who were working undercover, as it were, for the union to help them get some of these early organizing wins. So we look forward to digging through those disclosures here in the next few months. Yeah, let me um, let me pause for a second and let's kind of talk about the salts. You discovered at least one in your article, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. So the face of the first store, Starbucks store, to unionize uh, was a, a woman named Jazz Brissack, and she worked at the Elmwood Avenue Starbucks in Buffalo, New York. And that that was the first uh, storefront to organize back in December of 2021. And she was the face of this effort. Uh, She got uh, a stunning number of uh, high-profile media uh, profiles. Uh, She was a Rhodes Scholar, uh, very much an ideological activist, someone who's commented about uh, wanting to overthrow capitalism, whose childhood uh, idol was Eugene Debs, uh, so this this is a very well educated, very ideological uh, activist, and most of the you know media attention painted it in that light. This is a, this is a youth activist out to remake the world uh, and and uh, you know o- overturn the capitalist economic system that we have in the United States through union organizing, uh, and that's fine as far as it goes. But what was missing from that conversation was the fact that uh, Brissac was actually on the payroll uh, of Workers United, an SCIU affiliate, through the course of 2021 when she was actively working to organize the Elmwood Avenue Starbucks in Buffalo that was the first domino to fall uh, and, and set off the organizing chain last year. Uh, so we, you know, we dug into it, uh, and the 
the financial disclosure for the Workers United Rochester Joint Board out in, uh, in New York indicated that uh, it paid Brissax uh, just under $69,000 over the course of 2021. So, you know, essentially she has, she has two jobs. She's an employee, honest to God employee at Starbucks uh, making cappuccinos or whatever else people drink at Starbucks. I'm not a coffee guy myself. Uh, but, uh, and, and at the same time, she's getting a paycheck from, from Workers United to organize that Starbucks store uh, that she's being employed to work at. Uh, and, you know, and you can't fault her for her success. Uh, this is a, a fairly standard organizing tactic, but it's the type of thing that doesn't match the media narrative, which is this is a, a worker groundswell uh, that's more or less organic and taking place on its own. And uh, really, it's the, the truth is more complicated than that. There are well-funded actors behind the scenes deploying time-tested tactics to organize new workers, to create new sources of dues revenue. Uh, and if you want to put a, uh, a more academic or ideological sheen on that, that's fine. But at the end of the day, these unions are commercial enterprises like any other, and they have their tactics and their PR campaigns, just like any big corporation would. Uh, to try to grow their revenue and increase their membership. So let me pause for a second again um, to define a union salt. And union salts have been around forever. Sometimes we call them union moles. These are folks that are hired unbeknownst to an employer who are working for a union to unionize that employer from within. Correct. And so in this individual's case, if she's a barista, and I'm just making up the numbers here, but if she's a full-time barista, which she may not be, but if she's full-time, she's working about 2,000 hours a year, say at $15 an hour, she's around $30,000 a year. And then she's getting another almost $70,000 a year as an organizer. So she's close to $100,000 a year, and her sole job, other than pouring coffee or making lattes or whatever, is to unionize Starbucks from within. Yep. That is exactly right. That is exactly right. And were it not for those financial disclosures, that connection between that professional business connection between Brissac and Workers United would be essentially invisible. Uh, would would be difficult to um, to detect unless she admitted to it, you know, or or was otherwise found out. Um, was, she, was she listed as an organizer or a consultant? She was listed as an employee of Workers United Rochester oh, Board, along with their president and, and, and everyone else. So, yeah, she – now, I, my understanding is that under the Labor Management Reporting and Disclosure Act, it is possible for unions to pay SALTs and leave that transaction off the financial disclosure uh, unreported. So I, I don't, I don't know why Workers United didn't do that in this case. Um but but they didn't. They listed her as an employee by name, as an organizer, and gave the amount she would pay. Well, if it's below a certain amount, they don't have to be reported. However, um, if it's above a certain amount, and I don't remember what that threshold is, they would it would have to be reported. And oftentimes, unions will list them as consultants. Sure. So it it'll be interesting when you dig into 2022's numbers. And, and by the way, it may not just be Workers United that has them on payroll or on their mm-hmm. their annual reports. It could be SEIU as well. Correct. Correct. Uh, but, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, once we started digging into uh, additional financial disclosures, because uh, here's, here's the structure. Um, unions, particularly dealing with Workers United and SEIU, uh, are complicated bureaucratic entities. Uh, the affiliates all have their own legal identity with their own budgets and staff and offices and their own financial disclosures. Uh, but they all, of course, share affiliation and same basic uh, dues revenue stream. So to to fully encapsulate a union's activity in a given space sometimes involves looking at multiple unions' financial disclosures uh, because you can have different levels of the union, different affiliates of the union paying for different components of the same union organizing campaign. So in this case, uh, you know, at the, at the highest level, you've got the SCIU, the Service Employees International Union, multi-million member union based in Washington, D.C., membership in a variety of different industries. It has its own 
SEIU affiliates at the state level or at the local level beneath it. And then you've, you've got this um, uh, Workers United has its own separate affiliate structure. Uh, and but but that that structure merged with SCIU back in 2009, as I recall. But you, you still have these different levels of, of Workers United. You've got Starbucks Workers United, which is kind of the front group created you know to be the face of the union campaign. But then it is affiliated with uh, these these various regional joint boards that then all fall under Workers United. At, at its headquarters level, and then of course Workers United is now affiliated and subsidiary to to the SEIU. So there's a lot of moving parts here, a lot of different levels to the organization to keep track of. Uh, but as you start going through those different levels in the financial disclosures, then yeah, we we found other examples um, of professional union organizers being employed as consultants. Uh, but that who definitely were working on the Starbucks campaign. Richard Best, ben, uh, Bensinger is one that comes to mind. He was uh, Jazz Brissack's mentor, longtime union organizer. Uh, he and Brissack met on a, a UAW organizing campaign down in Mississippi years ago that was unsuccessful. And uh, it was Bensinger that recruited Brissack to come back to New England after completing a Rhodes scholarship and help organize uh, coffee shops. So he was paid, you know, 80, just under $83,000 in consulting fees by Workers United in 2021. Uh, and then other folks uh, that have been affiliated with the campaign, Christopher Chafee, uh, a, a consultant, was paid and almost $280,000 uh, by and he's been listed as a strategic advisor to the organizing campaign. Uh, law firms associated with the effort, Cohen, Weiss, and Simon in New York represented uh, a lot of the Starbucks Workers United affiliates in their uh, union representation petitions for the NLRB. They were receiving six-figure payments from Workers United uh, in, in 2021. Uh, another name that was interesting that um, that crosses over from the Starbucks campaign to some of the other high-profile campaigns going on was uh, Patrick Bruce. Uh, he was paid uh, a little over $14,000 by Workers United, and he's been involved both in the Starbucks campaigns in New England and coffee shop campaigns, uh, but also the effort targeting Trader Joe's uh, up in Massachusetts. As, now, that's as well. interesting. Very interesting. So he, he seems to be more of a hired gun. You know, you look at his social media profile, very much a socialist, democratic socialist activist. Um, but, uh, yeah, his name has been brought up in connection with a couple of these, these big name uh, organizing efforts out in New England. I'm trying to recall, is Trader Joe's a, quote, independent union, or is that um, are they affiliated with, I don't know, UFCW? Or, I'm trying to remember who is behind the Trader Joe's campaign. As, as I understand, and I, I haven't looked at it as closely as uh, Starbucks Workers United, but as I understand, it's uh, it's a very similar model. Uh, they were at least initially affiliated with Workers United, but marketing themselves as an independent union. So I, I know at least initially there were some SEIU Workers United connections there. Um, I don't know if that continues to be true today. I, I have actually a little bit more digging to do on that front uh, that was prompted by some of the uh, uh, some of the research that I started in the Starbucks campaign, uh, and and actually some of the feedback I've been hearing from uh, from Trader Joe's employees. So we'll see. That may be a topic for another day. Uh, well, it's, but it's that, interesting because I mean you touched on the different levels and and partnerships, affiliates, if you will, with SEIU, and having been involved with labor relations for so many years. I've always found the SEIUs, particularly since Andy Stern was president and since, it is very murky to try to connect the dots. Mm-hmm. It's one of the harder unions to actually figure out, you know, how their structures are are formed and because they did a kind of a um, reorg, if you will, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, where they just kind of mushed everything together and then you know, kept separate identities, so to speak, but they're really not right. separate. Correct. But they've got all, well, all kinds of different payrolls and, and reports. Absolutely right. And, it, you know, it has been interesting to see over the course of the last year how much of the new organizing at these big name 
retailers has been done under the at least the appearance of independent unions. And in some cases, I think that independence, at least initially, was more genuine than others. Um, you know, you look at the Amazon campaign. I think the active, the initial activists there probably were acting on their own uh, initiative. And, and uh, although, you know, it can't be denied at this point that they quickly started receiving institutional support from uh, organized labor and uh, democratic socialist groups and, and so on. Uh, but, you know, you start looking at the Starbucks campaign, for instance, and it looks a lot like an orchestrated effort by SEIU from the outset, although they've obviously wanted to create some distance between SEIU and the, and the Starbucks Workers United campaign. I think the same is probably true with Trader Joe's Workers United uh, and, and certainly some of the other campaigns going on as well. So, But, but it, it's interesting, the, the desire to want to appear independent and grassroots, uh, I think, is interesting. I, I, I don't know that that's been the case historically. I, I think, you know, you, you look at the previous Amazon campaigns, for instance, and it was very clear what, you know, it was the retail, wholesale <laughs> department right, store. Yeah. You know, yeah. or it was United Auto Workers. Uh, but, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of the campaigns in the last year seem to be at least a step removed from the actual corporate union identity, if you will, and, and want to appear more independent. So, I mean, correct, correct me if you, if you have a different view, but that no, does seem to be different I, than, than in the past. I'd expand on that a little bit because I've noticed this over the last five to 10 years. And I don't know if SEIU is behind it necessarily, um, but having been doing this for decades, I recall 20, 30 years ago when you'd see an organizing campaign, whether it's SEIU, Teamsters, or whomever, it would be, you know, the filing on the petition would be local XYZ. And over the last five plus years, there's been this morphing of, as opposed to having local numbers, they'll call it, you know, Workers United, XYZ, Employees United, things like that, even though they're still under the auspices of a, a particular union. And it's a, it's a clever branding effort that I don't know that a lot of people have picked up on, um, but their appearance is that they're independent or they're geared specifically for this one employer or two employers when, in fact, they're just another union local. Right. Yeah, they still right. have to pay the per capita tax to the international. They still fall within the union's constitution. They just have a different brand name. Right. It's kind of like I, Unilever. You know, you leave your own <laughs> Pepsi and Frito-Lay and all these other companies or whatever they own. But sure. you know, it's they're just going under their own brands, but they're still reporting to corporate. It's it's a different product line. We, you know, we're, we're marketing right. the, the Starbucks union uh, product line as opposed to, you know, over here. And then we've got the Trader Joe's union representation product right. line over here. But, yes, it all it all funnels back into SEIU corporate. That, that's a very good analogy. Uh, and I, I've noticed that here in Washington State where, where I'm based. Uh, with, there's been a fair amount of organizing among uh, public school or uh, uh, public college, public university uh, grad students. Uh, I know that's a trend nationwide, of course, uh, but in Washington State, ironically enough, the only employees in Washington that are represented by the United Auto Workers are graduate students <laughs> at public right. universities. Uh, no, nothing to do, of course, with the auto manufacturing industry. But I've noticed that uh, in, in both of those recent cases at these two public universities, UAW did, did exactly that. Uh, it's the same. There's only a single UAW local in Washington State, but they create you know, a dedicated website, Washington State University employees for better representation, you know, whatever the, the, the name is that they come up with and brand the organizing effort with, with that, uh, with that name, with that website, with that uh, marketing. But at the end of the day, what the employees are actually voting on is whether to be represented by UAW local 1221, I think it is, or, or you know, whatever the number is. And so right. it, it really is kind of a clever bait and switch where you think you're voting for a, local only organization composed purely of your your coworkers and your colleagues in your workplace and in reality you're, you're getting represented by uh you know a, a union with headquarters on the other side of the state uh that's affiliated with you know a union based in the midwest that primarily represents auto workers and doesn't 
you know, really have uh, much historical connection to Washington State University or Western Washington University. Um, but it's bait, it's bait and switch is a, yeah, bait and switch is a good term for that. Because it, it is, you know, you're still going to be paying the same per capita tax. You still have the same union constitution that you fall under. And we're just, you know, it's that whole saying of, you know, putting frosting on a turd and calling it a cupcake. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Yes. Yeah, so you can call it whatever you want. But at the end of the day, uh, it is the essence of the thing that matters. Right. Yeah. And it's, I think, part and parcel for the union movement trying to rebrand itself entirely. You know, mm-hmm. trying to gather the Gen Z workers, the millennials, and, you know, putting a new new face on it, so to speak. And it's, it's an intru- it's a high risk move to a certain extent. It, at least it, it may not pay dividends in the long term. If, if the unions are setting expectations that are unrealistic, uh, that people realize after the fact to have been, uh, unrealistic, or if you, you know, are misleading people again about what type of representation they're going to have, what level of input they're going to have into bargaining priorities or the amount of accountability that the union is going to have towards them. If, if people are voting for unionization with the understanding that this is going to be a locally run, locally determined organization that the workers in their workplace control only to find out that they have to answer to corporate <laughs> corporate union headquarters, uh, then that, that that's not just losing people theoretically on the idea of unions that that feels a lot more like betrayal. Uh, and that's, that's not good for union relations longer term. It might work now just, you know, for a while because so few uh, workers anymore have personal experience with unions and, and really know how they work or operate, but uh, being educated in how they work or operate in practice might not be the best way to to make friends and influence people for uh, for the labor movement going forward. So, be interesting to see if you know all the new uh, again these high high profile organizing wins that uh, unions secured last year. Be interesting to see if those stick, or if we start seeing decertification petitions, or certainly a slowdown in interest going forward. Uh, be very very curious to see if the momentum stays. Well, uh, it's. It's interesting with the SEIU because the SEIU is the union that funded the Fight for 15 movement. Mm -hmm. And their their blueprint, which goes back to 2009, which was to unionize fast food in complete employers, for example, McDonald's, Burger King, et cetera, do nationwide bargaining. And then, you know, when that failed to produce any results in terms of new membership, yes, they, they started the whole conversation about $15 $15 minimum wage, et cetera, et cetera. And it's had an impact there, but they have yet to have a contract with any of the fast food chains. So when they came to Starbucks, as opposed to unionizing a national brand in whole, like McDonald's, they did store by store. And they even fought to have the stores, particularly in Buffalo. And then it's, it's just those decisions kind of have gone down with all the other stores they won the decision legally through the National Labor Relations Board to unionize the individual stores. Now they've got over 250 of them or 60 of them unionized. Now they want to switch to industry-wide bargaining or at least employer-wide bargaining. And the employer is saying, no, we're going to do store by store, just like you argued. <laughs> so it's, it's fascinating how, you know, okay, we're going to switch strategies to go store by store because it's easier, but now we want a national contract. And if they sold the employees on, we're going to do, you know, site by site bargaining, you're going to have a seat at the table, but now you no longer have that seat at the table because right. we want to go national. Like, yeah, you you may see some of the baristas start opening their eyes a little bit. I, I think that's exactly right. And, and from what I've heard, and again, I still have a little more digging to do here, but from what I've heard, that same dynamic is playing out right now with, with the Trader, Trader Joe's stores that have unionized as well, where people were led to believe we're going to get our own stores contract, we're going to get to set the terms, uh, and, and now that several stores have been unionized, it sounds like the union is trying to get the company to bargain all of those contracts at once at the same bargaining table and approach it in a very standardized way, uh, which, again, is not what employees were voting for uh, or understood 
what they were going for uh, when the union was initially certified. So again, you know, unions might be able to get people in the door uh, by overpromising or, or misleading perhaps about uh, the level of control workers are going to have over their representation, but uh, whether they can keep employees there uh, is a different story in the long run. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting year with all the bargaining that, you know, from the organizing of 2022 to the bargaining of 23, it's going to be interesting to watch. Absolutely right. Yeah, particularly if the uh, economic conditions are not as uh, robust, perhaps, as they have been in the last couple of years. Right. Um, you mentioned in the article, and you just mentioned a few minutes ago, the the DSA involvement. That's that's another thing that I don't know that a lot of people have picked up on. The Democratic Socialists of America, um, who've been become very active with unions, mm-hmm. and I think you know it was kind of announced during the pandemic that the DSA was going to be really pushing the PRO Act and and you know trying to fight for unions, but they've assigned people to different campaigns. Absolutely, they have. So my first exposure with Democratic Democratic Socialists of America uh, was with Seattle City Councilwoman Shama Sawant, mm. uh, which is a name you might be familiar with. Yep. She's made the news uh, uh, her fair share of times over the years, although you don't hear as much about her recently. Uh, but when I first started working on labor policy issues uh, for the Freedom Foundation here uh, coming up on 10 years ago, it was just a few months before the city uh, airport town of SeaTac, Washington, uh, was targeted for the first in the nation $15 an hour minimum wage ballot measure. And Shama Sawant was a big uh, activist uh, behind that, you know, supporting that movement along with the local labor groups here. And uh, she, of course, was elected as the uh, <laughs> the joke out here is she's the only open socialist on the Seattle City Council. Uh, the, the rest are merely closet socialists. Uh, but uh, she's she's been on the Seattle City Council, you know, for, uh, I think pretty much since that time. Uh, and of course, was a big cheerleader for the fifteen dollars minimum wage in, in Seattle proper, which followed SeaTac, uh, and has made labor activism and, and union activism a centerpiece of her political identity. And and that, of course, has uh, has always, I think, been true uh, among those of, a, of the socialist persuasion that, uh, that they view labor unions and union organizing as a pathway to the, uh, or, or at least an outlet for the type of class warfare and uh, economic revolution that is very Marxist, is very traditionally Marxist in its outlook. Uh, and so, yeah, you, you've seen uh, it, among the political shift on the left uh, to, uh, as that has become increasingly pronounced uh, and, and, you know, moderates well, both parties, you know, maybe going in, in opposite directions a little faster than they used to. Uh, and you've seen a lot uh, more activism, I think, from democratic socialists and uh, they've become big supporters and foot soldiers for, and you know, ideological true believers for a host of um, traditional, you know, big labor union causes uh, whether that's organizing Starbucks or, or Trader Joe's uh, and getting their their folks employed as organizers, uh, either on a contract basis or consultant basis or, or on staff at some of these more progressive unions, uh, or supporting policy changes like the PRO Act, uh, that would certainly increase union organizing. Uh, it's, it's a definite trend uh, that, you're right, I think a lot of people don't know about, um, but it's uh, it's important to pay attention. You know, you, you have to take the other side at their word when they're talking about what they want to achieve and the vision that they have for the way the economy is supposed to work. Uh, and you know, when you're when you're talking with these folks, it's not just about making sure that employees have a voice over their working conditions. I mean, this this is old school class warfare for for a lot of the activists involved in these campaigns. Well, and you you say old school. Um, this battle has literally been going on for over a hundred years, where socialists have always viewed the labor movement as the means to their ends. And so Samuel Gompers fought it during the decades where he was AFL president, and then when he died, which was in the late twenties, the CIO emerged, and that's where you saw all the quote Reds going into the CIO and doing the mass industrialization. And then the Reds got kicked out, supposedly, in the 
fifties during the, you know, the red scare, so to speak. And then it wasn't until um, probably the Sweeney administration at the AFL-CIO, which was in the mid nineties where they actually took the ban. I think it was 97. They took the ban of communists out of the AFL constitution, AFL-CIO. And, and so slowly over the last couple of decades, it's really kind of pushed bubbled up, I guess would be a better term. And now they're just out in the open. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, unions, again, they're, they've always been seen as the means to the ends for Marxism. Right. I, I, I would be curious. My sense is, and, and you know, I've, I've been doing this for 10 years, but that's, that's a, you know, that my, my historical perspective is, uh, is a little limited. But uh, my sense is, though, that your, your average foot soldier, your average DSA foot soldier now is less likely to be a blue collar auto worker or coal miner or uh, or you know other other laborer that we might have traditionally associated with uh, with socialist activism, and far more likely to be somebody who looks like a, a jazz brissac, a Rhodes scholar, you know, a, a, a highly educated uh, college graduate, uh, you know, somebody who is in this purely for the ideological reasons, not so much for the workplace experience issues. Not, not to say that those things don't matter, but it's not, uh, I, I guess my sense is that the attention to workplace issues is being driven by ideology instead of the experience in the workplace driving the ideology. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The activists are an activist class in and of themselves. And, right. you know, it's um, the ideologues and they, they pretty much always have been, if you look at most professional organizers, um, unless they work their way up through the rank and file and then got hired by the union, you know, most are, are folks that jump around from union to union. In fact, I just saw one who is and who's been an organizer forever. He was with the Teamsters for many years and is now an organizer with the Animation Guild. Totally different union, totally different product. Right. Um, and he may have worked the docks as a kid, but, you know, he's... He's a professional organizer. Right. And an ideologue, my recollection of him. Yep, yep, absolutely. Yeah, but, well, it will be very interesting to see where the labor movement goes in the next few years. I mean, I, given the uh, political uh, wind at their back uh, under this administration, they've obviously got more opportunities for uh, traditional organizing uh, that the NLRB is opening up. Uh, but Economic headwinds seem to be in the, on the horizon. Maybe their creative uh, marketing strategies may come back to bite them down the line. So I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe uh, of course, time will tell. But maybe last year was was a lot of uh, sound and fury. But we'll see what it signifies uh, in, in, in the coming years and whether it does really portend a larger shift uh, in attitudes towards unionization, uh, at least among private sector workers. Yeah. I agree. It's going to be fascinating to watch. I keep using that term every time I'm interviewing somebody. It's fascinating because we're in a really interesting time. Um, and it's, I've seen the pendulum switch back and forth, you know, over the last 40 years, but, but this one is a bigger pendulum swing than I've seen in, at least in my career. Sure. Although, you know, my predecessors, I was in, I was in the union movement during the Reagan administration and my predecessors in the union movement probably thought Reagan was the biggest shift they ever saw. So, right. Um, so I, I should have probably started with this. You're with the Freedom Foundation. Um, what have you folks been up to? I, we should probably do a little quick, I'll, I'll do the links and all of that with the Freedom Foundation, but a little quick, you know, what is the Freedom Foundation and what you do? So we're, uh, Freedom Foundation, you know, is a 30-plus-year-old nonprofit uh, policy organization, public interest litigation group, uh, and, and public education organization. Uh, we, we fight to promote individual liberty, free enterprise, and limited accountable governance. So we're, we're generally right of center, uh, but nonpartisan and, and don't engage in, in political action. But the focus of our work in recent years has been helping public employees who are union-represented in uh, understanding their rights under the First Amendment to join or not join a labor union. Uh, that was uh, recognized by the U.S. Supreme Court in the 2018 Janus versus AFSCME decision, 
which struck down state laws requiring public employees to pay dues as a condition of employment. Uh, and since that decision, we've seen unions in uh, left-of-center states around the country adopt a number of uh, workarounds, countermeasures, if you will, to make it very easy for unions to sign public employees up for membership and very difficult for employees to resign their membership and cancel the deduction of dues from their wages. So part of what we do is, is direct informational outreach to employees to help them understand that they have a choice and how to exercise it uh, in their state and in their union. Uh, and then the other very critical component of what we do is provide free legal assistance to employees who uh, are running into problems with their union or challenging state laws that unduly burden their constitutional right to uh, uh, disassociate from a union if they want to. So that's, um, on the one hand, day-to-day, that's a lot of communications. That's a lot of talking to people one at a time. Uh, but we also have uh, a number of fairly high-profile lawsuits, several of which are being considered by the U.S. Supreme Court right now to try and address some of these very coercive uh, and we believe unconstitutional countermeasures that unions have deployed to, to try and keep people trapped paying dues to organizations that they don't support. So you've got um, two or three cases, if I recall. I had, uh, is it Sidney Phillips and uh-huh. Rebecca on probably back in October, I think, about a That's, couple That cases. sounds right, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rebecca Millard, um, who are attorneys with the foundation that had some cases going potentially up to the Supreme Court on forgery, if I recall. Correct. Yes, we, we have several cases pending right now that we've uh, we've uh, petitioned for Supreme Court review uh, from the Ninth Circuit out, out here on the West Coast. And several of those cases do involve public employees who had their signatures forged by unions on membership agreements. And the only reason that that you could even document this or discover this as a public employee is when you go to opt out. When you, when you try to resign your membership. Because one of the tactics unions have uh, adopted is inserting fine print on their membership agreements that contains an irrevocability provision. And they all read pretty much the same, and, and it says uh, something to the effect that if you sign up for union membership and authorize dues payment, uh, then you can only cancel your membership during an annually recurring escape period that is based on a formula from the day that you sign the card. So it's a unique opt-out window. It's an, a unique escape period to each employee in most cases, not, not a standardized you know, January escape period or, or something like that. Uh, and, of course, when you sign a union membership form, you give it back to the union. Uh, so employees don't have these on file and uh, you know don't have easy access to them. So what typically happens is, is we're generating – correspondence and talking to people about their rights, an employee will decide, yeah, I I really don't think this union is representing me well, or maybe they're using my money on things that I don't support. I'm going to resign my membership. They contact the union, send in a form, uh, and then the union replies and says, well, it's nice that you want to resign, but you signed this document with this irrevocability clause, and we're going to continue taking dues from your wages unless you opt out during this seven-day, 10-day, 15-day period, whatever it is. Um, and for some people, that triggers the thought that, well, gosh, I don't ever remember signing up for union membership. You know, give me a copy of the form. Show me what I signed. And uh, in a number of cases now, I think approaching 15 cases, we've worked with employees who, uh, you know, when they saw the form, realized this isn't my signature. You know, or, or this form is blank, or you know, you said that I filled this out electronically, but I know for a fact that I wasn't anywhere near this area on on that day. You know, I've never I've never come anywhere near Seattle, which is where you, uh, you know, you indicate I electronically signed this form. So we've we've uh, filed a number of these cases in federal court. Several of those now are, are up before the the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, but one one case in particular that is. Uh, that is interesting is the Los Rios Community College uh, District down in California. And and the union there, the Los Rios Classified uh, Education Association, uh, have a collective bargaining agreement, which contains, uh, you know, what's called a a maintenance of membership provision. And essentially what it, what it does is it says if the 
uh, if an employee in the community college is represented by this union, is a member at the time the collective bargaining agreement is executed between the employer and the union, then the employee has to maintain their membership and good standing with the union uh, until the end of the collective bargaining agreement. And uh, if the agreement is extended or renewed, then your obligation to maintain your membership is extended or renewed. And so we have these, this crazy situation where not, not only can you not stop paying the union, but these employees covered by these maintenance of membership agreements can't even resign their, their membership formally. They can't disassociate in any way from the union. Uh, and so in, in a lot of cases, unions will differentiate the two. They'll, they'll allow you to re resign your membership at any time, remove yourself from union governance, no longer be subject to union discipline, for instance, if you wanted to cross a picket line or something like that. Uh, but they'll continue requiring you to pay under the terms of the irrevocability provision in your membership form. But several of these unions in California have gone even further and said, no, we're, we're not even going to let you resign your membership. You are going to be completely subject to our jurisdiction, to our bylaws. You play by our rules uh, indefinitely. And, and we're not going to, uh, to allow you to stop paying us or to resign your membership. So that raises some very interesting uh, First Amendment issues, I mean, that's not just payment of dues to underwrite for, you know, speech by the union that the right. employee may disagree with. That's that's compelled association. I, I have to be stuck as a member of this group in good standing that uh, that I don't want anything to do with. These are, so these are public sector workers, right? All, all public sector workers, correct. Those, that's, but, uh, but your theory, which is, I believe, accurate... Um, even in private sector, even in a non-right-to-work state like California, if I'm a Teamster member, or UAW member, whatever, I would still have the right to resign membership, even though it's a non-right-to-work state. That is Janice. correct. That, that, so there's an interesting distinction here. So uh, the Supreme Court ruled decades ago that the National Labor Relations Act, which governs private sector unions, private sector employees, and, and labor relations, that that federal statute guarantees to employees a right to resign their membership in the union at any time. That is across the country. That's right-to-work state, non-right-to-work state. If you're a private sector worker, you have a statutory right to resign your union membership whenever you want. Now, if you're in a non-right-to-work state like California, you can still be required to pay union fees, but the union can't compel you to be a member in good standing. Uh, in the public sector, uh, courts, federal courts have never, never settled this question uh, of membership. And the courts have yet to find that there is a First Amendment free speech or free association right of public employees to resign their union membership whenever they want. So at some level, even though public employees have a right under the Janus decision to not join the union, and not pay the union at, at some level, um, they, they don't have a recognized constitutional right to resign membership as such, which is uh, part of the reason I think this case is so interesting, and uh, hopefully the Supreme Court finds it interesting as well. That I would think with or without Janice, the right to associate or disassociate under the First Amendment would be kind of clear-cut. So it's kind of surprising to hear this, especially after Janus in the public sector. Correct. Well, the, the way that federal courts are handling, uh, at least out here in the Ninth Circuit, the way federal courts are minimizing Janus is by stating that it applies only to non-members. So if you... Uh, if you never join the union... And if you were always a non-member, then the courts would, would acknowledge, okay, the union can't compel you as a public employee who's never joined the union, never been a member. We can't compel you to pay dues or union fees. Janice prohibits that. We need your affirmative consent to take money from you. But the courts have been saying, if you've ever been a member of a union, if you are currently a member of a union, then Janice rights don't apply to you. You don't have any enhanced right to get out. So in a situation like what we're dealing with uh, for our plaintiffs in, in Los Rios uh, Community College, they were members. Uh, 
they don't want to be members anymore. But at the time Janus was decided and, and since their collective bargaining agreement has required that they be members and they want to get out. Um, but these lower federal courts are essentially finding that you, you don't have a right to get out as a member. Uh, even let, me ask, let me ask a quick clarifying question. Cause you just said um, since Janus, did this maintenance of membership clause exist before Janus? That's my understanding. Yes, I think this goes okay. way back. Um, and, and some of these folks did, uh, when they were first employed back in the 90s, did file uh, or, or complete uh, you know, a, a form authorizing the deduction of dues from their wages by the employer. But that was not a membership form. Uh, no, nothing on those documents indicated, you know, I, I want to be a member of the union. It just authorized deduction of dues by the employer. It's very straightforward. There's no irrevocability language in the document. Um, unions didn't think about that in 1997 because they knew as a matter of law, we can just compel you to pay. So there was no concern about preventing people from opting out because the law just didn't provide them an option to opt out. And it wasn't until after Janus that we started seeing unions adopt these irrevocability provisions designed to keep keep people from getting out. So in, so in this case, you know, we, we have employees who were paying because they had to pay. Law required them to pay. And the collective bargaining agreement required them to be a member. Um, Janice comes along and then says, as a First Amendment matter, public employees can't be compelled to pay unless they've authorized uh, union dues deductions voluntarily and knowingly. And yet these federal courts are saying, well, sorry, you people who have been paying dues since 1997 because state law required you to. Uh, you're a member of the union, and Janus rights only apply to non-members, so you're stuck. You don't have a pathway to get out. Uh, and there's no constitutional problem with, the, <laughs> with a public employer requiring you to uh, maintain your membership in a union and continue to pay said union. It's crazy. It's really crazy. And, uh, you know, it's begging for the Supreme Court to step in here and clarify what should be, as you mentioned, obvious on its face, that you just government just can't compel you to be a member of a private organization that you don't want to associate with, much much less fund it with your, uh, uh, with your wages. Well, it's, it's almost as though, okay, you, you got baptized in a church, but you can never leave that church. Mm-hmm. So you folks are um, predominantly in the Ninth Circuit, at least your area of coverage, but you also cover workers throughout the country as needed, right? Correct. So uh, historically, we've been a Washington State-based organization. We've grown in recent years and now have offices in Oregon and California, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. Uh, And we're at the point now we have staff working remotely uh, almost everywhere uh, around the country. So most of our litigation, uh, just based on where where we've historically been located, is out here in the Ninth Circuit on the West Coast. Uh, but we are doing communications work and educational work with employees uh, all over the United States now. And uh, we're building out our legal team. And uh, we'll be increasingly engaged in this type of litigation uh, in, in other federal circuits as well. Well, that's yeah, that's why I was asking in particular in relation to this particular case, as in if you've got any other types of cases in other circuits that would cause this potentially to go up to the Supreme Court faster? Well, I mean, it's it's there now. I mean, whether the court will, will decide whether it's going to hear it or not. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know that we can get the issue to the court any, any faster than we have. Uh, the, the court did express some interest uh, in the Kirk case, the, the Los Rios uh, Community College case, and, and has requested additional uh, briefing, which which is a good sign, uh, but not, of course, determinative of whether they'll ultimately accept the case. Uh, but, you know, the, the interesting thing is, you know, it, it might be tempting to kind of write off the Ninth Circuit uh, because it is uh, among the federal circuit courts. It certainly has a reputation of being more, uh, more progressive ideologically, uh, and it does have a pretty good track record of being overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, but other other cases along similar lines have been filed uh, in circuit courts around the country by, by other organizations with uh, you know, similar, uh, similar challenges. Uh, and 
it doesn't seem to have made much difference. I, I don't know why that is, but for the most part, these lower federal courts seem to have been uh, reluctant to apply the Janus decision in the manner, I think, in which it was intended to be understood and uh, almost universally have adopted a very narrow reading of what Janus means and have been uh, very deferential to state and union efforts to circumvent it. So at this point, you know, it's been almost five years since the Janus case, uh, Janus decision came down. And I, I think it's time for the Supreme Court to step back in again because the, the lower federal courts just have been have, have not been coming to the right conclusions uh, on these issues and, and have allowed a lot of uh, very coercive, a lot of very uh, manipulative policies and practices uh, to go by unchallenged. Well, it's it's interesting because, uh, you know, at least in the private sector, that issue has been settled. And yes, it's in Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act, the right to refrain. But you would think with public sector workers, you know, your freedom to associate also includes, you know, <laughs> that freedom to disassociate. And, 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 that's, and that's the argument we're making to the Supreme Court. I, I sincerely hope they... They revisit this issue. It's it's much needed. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, there I go with that word again. <laughs> so, anything else going on with the Freedom Foundation? Oh, there's always fun stuff going on. Uh, not all of it I can talk about at any given time, but we'll, we'll certainly keep you uh, up to date as we uh, as we do have the, the leeway to talk about some of the other core projects that we've got going on at at the moment. The big one for us that we're waiting with uh, bated breath on is some of these Supreme court appeals. Is there, um, is there a timing or calendar in which, you know, you've got to file your writ of certiori and you're going to know by X next date? Like, uh, that's a great question. You know, I'm not an attorney myself. Uh, our attorneys uh, here on staff would probably be able to answer that better than I can. But my, my sense is that the court has a lot of leeway, uh, in handling its own schedule. And so there, there are some parameters I think that, um, you know, if they don't take it by particular days, that's a pretty good sign, you know, that it's not going to go forward. But uh, I don't believe there's any hard deadlines involved. They, they can kind of decide what they want to do. It's the Supreme Court. Yeah, I know they just did oral arguments on Glacier Northwest versus Teamsters. So right, I wasn't sure if the window had closed in terms of what they were taking for this term. No, no, we, we still have uh, some time on the clock here. Okay. And we'll have to see. Uh, yeah, have to see what they do. Yeah, the, the uh, Glacier case was also an interesting one. Pri- private sector, of course, and, and we're not involved in that one uh, directly, but that, but that case did originate out, out here in Washington State, too. Yeah. So that, that will be another one to watch, for sure. Yeah. Well, I think the unions are making a bigger deal out of it than is necessarily there. You know, they're saying that the court may eviscerate the right to strike. And I listened to the oral arguments on that. And I'm like, this isn't really about the right to strike. It's when you can damage or not damage property. Correct. That's exactly right. Yeah. No, but that's. uh, It's the high. That was true of the Janus case. That was true of most of these labor cases. The the coverage from the left tends to be pretty overwrought about the potential implications. Hyperbolic. Hyperbolic. Yes, absolutely. In any case. Well, Max, I appreciate you coming on. I, I enjoy getting your press releases and, and the uh, National Review article was interesting to read because you hit some of the stuff that most are not hitting in terms of the SALT, the SEIU's involvement, et cetera. Well, happy to, uh, happy to talk about what we're working on uh, whenever you find it interesting. And uh, certainly we, we think we've got a lot of cool stuff happening here at, uh, at Freedom Foundation, and we'll keep you up to date as, uh, as more comes down the pipeline. Well, I appreciate it, sir. Thanks for coming on Labor Relations Radio. My pleasure, Peter. Thanks again for having me. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was Maxford Nelson, Director of Labor Policy for the Freedom Foundation. And in addition to the links I usually put up with the Freedom Foundation links or Max's bio, um, I'm also going to include a couple of other links on the topics that we were referring to, both of which are prior Labor Relations Radio episodes, one on Union Salts and Moles, as well as the episode that we had Freedom Foundation attorneys Sidney Phillips and uh, Rebecca Millard on discussing the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals cases on union forgery. So in any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. 
And if you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.